How about that trebuchet last week, huh? That was awesome. If you missed it, uh, we, well, we, a few uh, of the uh, manlier men in the congregation created a uh, medieval siege weapon called a trebuchet and uh, launched pumpkins um, across the field, exploding a few, and uh, it, was, it was pretty awesome. And the thing is, once you have a trebuchet, you can use it over and over. I mean, we're not going to just chop it up for firewood. So uh, we're talking right now, just, just a little hint, you know, when you're here for Easter time, we're thinking about launching like uh, pinata type things. So like they'll just fly up and then it'll explode with candy on the ground and then the children will rush in and while they're there we'll try and hit them with the second and third rounds. It's going to be awesome. Uh, if you've been with us any length of time, you know that uh, we're in a series called uh, Fresh Look at the Old Book. Uh, we're kind of trying to take a different uh, spin on Old Testament texts. So even if you're not a super familiar with church person, uh, you might have heard of some of the characters that we're talking about. If you are a super church person, we're hoping to see it in a different way, a new light, a new take on it. See if God has other ways that um, he can speak, ways that we're not used to. And looking for the text to be inexhaustible in its ability to teach and to uh, transform us. Today uh, we're going to talk a little bit about um, how we deal with uh, the little deaths or the tragedies of life. The, uh, the, Bible, the Bible actually doesn't tell us how people feel very often. For the most part, the Bible's interested in what people do. Uh, it's, it's very, you don't get a whole lot of like inner monologues like you do in contemporary literature. Contemporary literature is all about like this teen girl and trying to figure out if she really loves this vampire or that werewolf, whatever it is, and how she feels. And it's just page after page dripping with emotion. That's not the Bible. Uh, the Bible is not uh, a young adult fiction. The Bible is actually honest about the human condition and what people are like. Um, and today, but today, every once in a while, we get some indication of what's going on inside someone's mind or is how they're dealing with things. And this is the only time in all of Joseph's story that we actually get a chance to see, not the only time, pretty much close to the only time, that we really get to see what's kind of how he's responded to everything that's gone on in his life. And so I'd like us to ask that question, how, how do we deal, or how do you do, what, what do you do with uh, life's little deaths? And deaths, by that I mean um, are, are the tragedies, uh, you know, we all get one big death, uh, unless the Lord returns um, while we're still alive. But uh, before that, we, we, we go through life and a lot of bad things happen. And nobody, well, very few people are going to have more bad things happen to them than Joseph. And today, I'd like us to see how he deals with that, how he thinks through that. Um, this is uh, my translation, kind of based off the Common English Bible. If you want to follow in the Pew Bibles, it's page 24. You can see where some of the changes are. Um, this is a, I, I've edited a few things, and I'll describe a few of those as we go on. But, but here it is. Uh, this is Joseph. Joseph has just been made second in command of all of Egypt. He's gone from, you know, lowly, naughty kid to, you know, now second in command, just behind the Pharaoh. Um, and it says this, verse 46, Joseph was 30 years old when he began to serve Pharaoh, Egypt's king. When he left Pharaoh's court and traveled through the entire land of Egypt, I've dropped down the verses there just describe how he goes around and collects grain to prepare for the famine. So I've just, I've skipped those. Before the years of famine arrived, Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of Heliopolis, Joseph's wife given to him by the Pharaoh, 
gave birth to two sons for Joseph. Joseph named the oldest son Manasseh because he said, God made me forget all of my troubles and everyone in my father's household. He named the second child Ephraim because he said, God has made me fruitful in the lands of my suffering. We've talked before about naming in the Old Testament, naming in Scripture, and it's, it's almost prophetic. Like what, a lot of times names that are given to children are described sometimes their character. Sometimes they're, uh, they're uh, sort of a talking about the, the parent's life, which is what we see here. I'd like to take a closer look at this text because it doesn't seem like Joseph's really emoting here, but I, I think he actually is. The first thing you notice, Joseph, Joseph is 30 years old right now. Does anybody, can you cast back a month? When we first started talking to Joseph, does anyone remember how old Joseph was when he was taken away from his family and sold into slavery? Does anyone remember? 17, there it is, 17, that's right. Was that you, Liz? You get a, okay, I have a mini Snickers I'll steal from my kids. I'm going to give that to you. Um, yeah, he's 17. So what that means is he's now had 13 years of his life since he was with his family. He's had 13 years of his life doing what? Well, let's go through it. Uh, I have some pictures here to remind us. Uh, when he's 17 years old, his... Uh, oh, that's, that's cute. Uh, his... <laughs> I, that's what you get when you Google image search. Uh, they, his, his brothers, who I guess were all white men with beards. That seems wrong. Okay. Uh, they, they threw him into a well. They were planning to murder him. They decide instead, what? Next slide. Send him into slavery. They make a deal uh, with some slavers. They, um, they move him along. He, uh, we're not exactly sure at what age, but he's young, so probably in his 20s when he goes to work for Potiphar. Uh, Potiphar's wife, as you'll recall, uh, became very attracted to Joseph because he was, what was it, comely and beautiful to look at. Uh, he was a very good-looking man. She uh, was neglected by her husband, and she tries to um, seduce him. He refuses. She'll, you'll remember that she accuses him of rape, at which point he is sentenced to life in prison. And that's not what an Egyptian prison looks like because there is no excrement vomit. Um, and it looks like he has a nice place to sit. You know, sometimes uh, we, especially when you get familiar with the story, right? We grew, up, we grew up, all of us here have seen Disney films, so we know, um, you know, sure, the, the hero is going to have to go through some hardships, blah, 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 but if they didn't do that, you know, then there would be no heroic, you know, win at the end, right? We know that. We're aware of that. But sometimes we start to, we just skip over. We just start to skip over, just like not really pay attention, what, I mean, what has Joseph really experienced here? First off, notice that he, he has been betrayed by everyone he's ever known. His family has betrayed him. His bosses have betrayed him. Uh, I skipped the part. Um, there was, we, we didn't talk about it, but there was a, a guy who was one of his a fellow prisoner. And Joseph helps him out, interprets a dream for him, gives him really good news. And he's like, hey, don't forget me when you go to see Pharaoh. Please, I got to get out of here. This is horrible. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got it. Two years later, nothing's happened. He's been abused um, by, of course, his family and also uh, his employer's wife. He's been abused um, typically in prisons. 
Abuse was more about uh, not eating enough, but sometimes they physically abused prisoners. So he's probably taken his fair share of beatings at this point. At 30 years, by the age of 30, this is the first thing you note, by the age of 30, Joseph has experienced many deaths in his life. Betrayal, abuse, false accusation, imprisonment, and really abandonment. You know, it's, uh, I think we can get some sense of what it's like, uh, but it's hard in the age of cell phones um, and email. It's hard for us to imagine what separation looked like in the ancient world, what it would be like for Joseph for 13 years never to have seen his family. You know, there, there's, no, there's no updates, there's no Facebook, there's no, none of those things. It, he has been completely cut off, he has, and he has every reason to expect he's never going to see any of them again. And why would he want to, right? They're trying to kill him. Go back to the text. Uh, interesting, just a, just a little aside here. Um, before the years of famine arrived, Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, p- priest of uh, Heliopolis. Um, the Bible's really interesting here because usually when it brings up uh, sort of Egyptian priests and stuff, it's like, we don't like them. Uh, there's a lot of places, actually, where Heliopolis is brought up. Um, it's, uh, Heliopolis is the Greek for uh, sun city, city of the sun. I have a picture from uh, modern day. We, ha- we still have a little piece of that. that that's the uh, Al-Masala obelisk. It's still there in Egypt. You can see it. It was the seat of uh, the worship of the sun god, Amun-Ra. He's uh, on the screen there behind me. Um, usually when the Bible talks about priests of other religions, especially Egyptian ones, it's very negative. It's very like, bad, bad, bad. It's really interesting that the scriptures don't castigate Joseph for really starting a family with the daughter of like a high priest of the sun god. Presumably in their household, it's not just going to be Judaism, right? His wife is probably going to be teaching some syncretic like other religions to their children. Usually the Bible gets really mad about this. In fact, there's a number of places where specifically Heliopolis is condemned by the prophets and told this is bad news. And yet the Bible seems to let Joseph off the hook. It's like, part of it is he didn't have a choice. It's like, you're marrying this girl. Uh, But he does consent to then begin a family with her and start life. Uh, He's really become mostly assimilated to life in Egypt. That's the next thing in your note sheets. He's become assimilated. And the Bible doesn't seem to be that upset about it, which is strange. Maybe it's an acknowledgement that people who go through deaths in life end up with different stories, different narratives that get really messy. You know, the, Joseph, it would be one thing if Joseph had grown up with his family, uh, doing all the things that the uh, worshipers of Yahweh do, and then had gone off and tried to get a foreign wife. That would have been bad. And, but, but because he's gone through all this stuff, there's a sense in Scripture where it's like, God's like, I'm just glad you're still with us, buddy. You know? Like, you've taken your licks, and I don't want you to, I don't want you to be too beat up. Just a little aside there. All right, back to the text. This is the, the, the best part. Joseph names his children. He names the oldest one Manasseh. There's a cute little play on the Hebrew here. Um, Manasseh, because God made me forget. Made me forget is Nasah. So Naseh is uh, Manasseh. It sounds like God has made me forget in Hebrew. Uh, it's a little, little play on words there. Uh, the idea being, right, that, that, that God has, has done all these things, and so now, jo- now Joseph can move on, right? He's, he can forget 
All of the stuff. Uh, literally, uh, it, I like troubles too. That's a good English translation for what he's gone through. When you've, gone, when you've been accused of rape um, and your family's tried to kill you and send you into slavery, we would probably call that more than just troubles. We would say like the hellish existence or something like that. But that's okay. The troubles that he's... And, then, and, and, you, and now I've forgotten all of that, right? And now I've also forgotten everyone in my father's household. Literally, it's just my father's household. But what it's talking about is the people. The people he grew up with. He's, they're, they're gone. They're out of his mind. Well, that's weird, though. Like, if you named your kid Forget. Right? Let's just imagine you name your kid Forget. And so you're, like, doing whatever it is that Joseph does. I guess he probably, he's counting, like, all the barns that he's got of grain. And he's like, oh, there's forget. It just, it just, is he going to be like, he's going to be like, huh, what, what does that remind me of? I mean, there's a serious irony here, right? Like, he's named the kid forget, but every time he looks at him, he's going to obviously be reminded of the stuff he's trying to forget, right? It's a weird, it's a weird way of, of, of having kind of almost like a memorial of what's gone in his, on in his life. I have that picture here. It's, it's really, it's an externalization of what happens when you get scars, okay? This is Jesus here, his hands, right? Notice that Jesus... After the crucifixion, after the resurrection, he still has the scars, the wounds of his past. They don't hurt anymore, they don't bleed anymore, but they're still there. Why? What's going on? Well, Jesus doesn't just, you know, act like the past never happened, okay? He doesn't just erase the past, he doesn't deny the past. The past is is, is what has brought him to where he is, and he lives with it, but it's now memorialized in scars. The The scars don't hurt. It's not, you're not wounded anymore, but every time he sees them, he remembers the crucifixion, remembers what it took to get the salvation of the world for humanity. Our scars, I, um, I hate to admit this, but I can't see my appendix scar anymore, because it's like, it's like tucked under a little bit. It's like I would have to probably use a mirror. But if I were to do that, I would be reminded of uh, my laparoscopic surgery in the fourth grade. Before, you know, they, apparently back, if you're really old and you had your appendix out, really old, meaning like above 40, um, what they used to have to do, take it, uh, they used to have to do this just massive, like just like rip your appendix out and you bleed on all over the place. With mine, they had like robots where they just like, they're like a small incision and the robots went in and they found it and they pulled it out. I don't know. It was complicated. But the point is, I have a very small scar. But, but every time I, I remember growing up, every time I look at it, I just remembered how awesome it was uh, to be in the hospital and to be having surgery and to, to have that catheter. You know what a catheter is? Man, those are bad. <laughs> Not a cool thing at all. Um, I remember having it removed. <laughs> like, I, I remember a lot of things. And all I got to do is just look at that little scar. Now, the pain is gone, right? The, the, the past isn't, it's not present anymore. But in a way, it's with me. It's been memorialized in my flesh. In the same way, Manasseh memorializes for Joseph all of the horror that has been his life. It doesn't hurt anymore because he's made peace with it, but he's now, he's, he's memorializing, so it's part of his story. Joseph is never going to just be Joseph the Egyptian. He's going to always be Joseph, the, the young Hebrew slave. 
He's always going to be Joseph, the wrongly accused. Joseph, the imprisoned. Those things are always going to be with him. And yet now, he's at a place where he can be at peace with that. He can accept that. It's no longer ruling over him. So the next thing in your note sheets is that um, Joseph has accepted the wounds of his past. So he named the first kid Forget. What's he going to do with the second one? He named the second Ephraim because he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Um, Ephraim and then uh, the, the word fruitful, it's the same thing. So, um, and it really it could mean like, it really means uh, having children, propagating a lot. Um, interestingly, the word at the end of the sentence there, suffering, in the Hebrew, it's, uh, it's the word that's almost always used of women who are unable to have children in the Old Testament. So a lot of times in the Old Testament, there'll be a woman who, uh, who can't conceive, and that was a big deal in the ancient world. And it will always say that she had this, this word suffering, these trials, these tribulations. There's a play on words going on there because what's, uh, what, what, what Joseph is basically saying is he's saying, he's saying God uh, gave me children in the land of my barrenness. Right? You could really even just almost replace those words. God gave me children in the land of my barrenness. Why is that? Well, when he's a young man, right? When he's a, when he's a boy, he expects to be with his family and to live the life of a good Hebrew young man. And, it, and, and, and that's his future. As soon as he's taken off to slavery, Joseph's future is, comes to an end. Like, there's no hope for this guy. He's never going to go back to home. He's never going to... He, he's lost everything. So in his mind, he's, he's now barren. His life is going to have no future. There's no possibility of, of fruitfulness. And, 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 because really, I mean, what are kids? I think I have the picture of children. Oh. So I, I Googled, um, children. And it, and, and what it, it automatically gave me, uh, d- diverse children. It's interesting. They, they don't want me to, because I think they were worried I was only going to have white people or something. Like, so they're helping me. Thanks, Google. I know. Um, but really what kids are is they are the future. I mean, when you were in your 20s, you, you were like, I'm my own future. This is awesome. And in your 30s, you're like, still going strong. In your 40s, you're like, uh-oh. In your 50s, you're like, man, I hope I, <laughs> what am I leaving behind here? Sorry, Steph. Just think about it, you know, think about your future. Uh, <laughs> really, we, we, um, we get to a point where what life is, what the future is, is the next generation, right? Joseph's come to a place in his life where he thought it was all going to stop. It was all over. It was barrenness. It was emptiness. It was hopelessness. But he's made a life, really God has made a life for him in Egypt to the point where all of the horror of the past, all of his broken dreams, his lost heartbreak, all of that, right? It's no longer going to rule his future. Now he has a a blessed future, a hopeful future. And he's not sure what it looks like exactly, but the the past does not rule over the future. It's the next thing in your note sheets. Joseph refuses, really God refuses to let the past rule over Joseph's future. Now, there's nobody here who's undamaged. 
All right? Undamaged people, you know, people who've come through with no scratches or nicks, no scars, um, no bleeding. Nobody's like that. If you think you're like that, denial is more than a river in Egypt. That's who you think you are. Oh, come on. That's a classic. I mean, we could go on and on with puns. And so we, 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 come, we come to all this with a culture, like a cu- sort of cultural script for what to do with tragedy, what to do with death in your life, okay? And there's basically two kind of schools of thought in our culture about what to do with deaths in your life. The first is suck it up, buttercup. This is, um, you know, I've shared before that I have had anxiety in the past and I've, you know, some mental health issues. And... Uh, <laughs> And so I, I really was very skeptical of the suck it up buttercup um, way of dealing with tragedy. Because I was like, anyone, anytime someone would tell me that while I was going through this, I'd be like, ah, you don't get it. But then I had kids. And then I tried to teach the older one to ride a bike. And I was like, no, the suck it up buttercup is right on. That is absolutely true. Uh, it took Alice a month to learn how to ride a bike. Why is that? Well, probably, probably part of the problem is that Aaron wasn't the one doing it. Because she's the one who's hard. Like, because she was a champion, a competitor. So she would have been like, you failure, get back on. I was like, ooh, it's okay. I don't want you to get hurt. And so she cried and whined. And after a month, when she finally got it, I was like, man, this would have been a lot faster if I'd just kind of been like, suck it up, kid. Like, really. Because I'm pretty sure when I remember when I learned to ride a bike, it was like, oh, you fell? <laughs> get on. So I can see the value of suck it up, buttercup. I do. The other um, kind of cultural script for how to deal with tragedy, death in your life, is you got to explore your pain. Like really get in deep. Spend time with it. Get to know it. Start to love it. Oh, you don't think this is true? You don't think this is true? This is definitely true. People, we, we live in a therapeutic culture. Like here in, here in the United States of America, it's like, it's like everyone's trying to figure out how damaged they are. So you go to your therapist and your psychiatrist, you get deep into it, right? And then at a certain point, you notice, this is what happens. I, I'm speaking from experience here. I'm not like, not knocking y'all. Uh, you, what happens is you recognize, you're like, wow, if I share these painful stories, I do get a lot of sympathy. And I like that. And, and when I expose myself, people are like, gosh, you're authentic and great. And I found that, um, and maybe you have too, that, that um, if you really just sit with your pain, um, you can actually get a lot of power, sympathy. The, the worst thing that would happen is if you moved beyond it, right? Because then no one would pet you anymore. No one would give you those hugs that you need. No one would give you kind of the cultural status that comes with victimhood. So this is kind of the, the, the way the culture deals, right? Look how interesting and how, how different um, Scripture pictures Joseph's uh, move through. Uh, he, he's, he's, not, he's not suck it up, buttercup. Remember, he, he's, he's holding on to it. He's, he's memorialized his story. He's very honest about his story. 
Um, but at the same time, his story uh, and, and the grieving and the mourning that's gone on through it, I mean, imagine the bitterness he must have had as he's thinking about, dude, you really sold me into slavery? Really? Like, that, that's, he had to work through that stuff. And yet, he never got, in, he gets to a point then where, where instead of just wallowing, instead of just staying with it, the, um, the pain, it, 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 he, he moves through, he, it's part of his story, but it's not the end of his story. The story keeps going. There's a bright future ahead that God has provided. And I think, um, you know, nor, I don't always, I, don't, I very rarely say, hey, like, let's just look at the life of this Old Testament person and emulate it, because usually that's a really bad idea. Uh, the people in the Old Testament do terrible things. But I do think this is an in- instance where, where the Bible is pretty uniform with how it thinks about what we do with um, the trials and deaths of our past. And it really is, like, it, it's like, move to a place where it's part of your story, you know, Jesus scars the, the crucifixion is always part of Jesus' story. But also then move beyond to the bright future that God has for you. Like, move past. Don't let the, the past control the future. And I think that's a, kind of the paradigm of Scripture. So I think Joseph does a really great job of dealing with the past. And what's cool is, most of us, that's kind of where we want to get to a place. A place of acceptance. A place of, and then we can leave the past where it is. We can let it lie. Let it, let it be dead, in a way. But there's something sad about that, too. Um, I'm sure there's many people here who either are or have been um, in really destructive relationships. Um, Sometimes romantic, sometimes family, sometimes friends. But relationships where, um, really not your fault, the, the other party was abusive, was... And finally, you know, you had to just get out. And that's the right thing to do. I mean, I, you, you need to be away from people who are uh, damaging you uh, over and over, and we don't want to um, continue cycles of abuse. But there's something sad about that, because there's, there's always this sense that even if you get to a point where that's part of your story, and, and you have moved on, there's a bright future, there's a part of you that still loves these people, that still wants to see something for them. And it's okay for you to let go of that. Why? What happened to Joseph? Next picture. Crazy story. Joseph's ready to live his life out in Egypt, do his thing. And through a number of happenstances that God orchestrates behind the scenes, he's suddenly reunited with the family that betrayed him. And through no, you know, nothing that he planned really, it, he's given an opportunity to salvage And really, God gives him the opportunity to salvage this thing that was dead and gone. It's okay for us to accept and to let go of the things of the past because we're always leaving open the possibility that God might do something insane and miraculous and wild. God might step in and do something nuts. And if he does, awesome, great. If he doesn't, we're okay. We're we're ready for God's bright future for us. But there's always that door open where God might just, I I mean, we're talking like his family travels from way north all the way down, and they end up right in front of Joseph after, you know, at this point, 17 more years. I mean, he spent half of his life in Egypt, and he still recognizes all all of this seems impossible. And yet God in his power and his glory can do amazing things. Our job, 
Joseph's job, accept and leave open the possibility that God resurrects. It's the last thing in your note sheets. We accept God resurrects. We can be okay being like, like just accepting, making it part of our story, moving on, not letting the past control the future. But God may, he may have in mind, you think about that person in your life, that relationship that you wish you could have back, but you know you can't. Think about that thing that you did, which you really regret, and you wish you, but you can't. Think about the thing that was done to you, that you wish you could see it healed, but you can't. You never know. We accept God resurrects. So, if you're here, you might be one of those people like this beautiful elephant. Oh. That elephant is wallowing. That elephant loves the mud. It's, it's the African prairie. I think they have prairies in Africa. It's very hot. And that elephant loves to just... There's some of us here today who, if you're honest with yourself, you, there's a grudge, um, there's a, a, some, a wound that you carry um, that you don't want to have healed. It gives you credibility, it gives you power, it gives you sympathy, it gives you a lot of things that you want. It, it keeps you in, a, in destructive patterns that you like. Please stop wallowing. Victimhood is um, something to be transcended through the power of Jesus Christ, not something to sit in until you die. As long as you sit and say, God, you know what? I, I'm going to hold on to this thing. I'm going to hold on to this relationship. I'm going to hold on to this, this destructive path. As long as you hold on to that, right, you are implicitly saying, I'm not, I'm not interested in the future, God, that you have for me. I'm interested in the present that I have for myself. I'm not interested in, in, in your plans, what you have um, to you know, make me your servant, to give me a life of, of eternal value and meaning that I can serve you. Instead, I'm going to hold on to this. The elephant is cute. But wallowing is ugly. There are some here today uh, who literally either have or have had PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, I think I have a picture of a soldier here. Uh, I I learned this. Apparently, um, 20 combat veterans a day commit suicide. Do you know that? It's also lopsided, too, where it's about um, the, the suicide rate for male combat veterans is uh, 1.5 times the population at large. For females, it's three times. So female veterans are um, three times as likely to commit suicide as, um, as women in the general population. PTSD is not something that you can control at the beginning. Um, I have a friend, and... Uh, he told me a story. He had a friend who was a combat veteran in Afghanistan. And uh, this was some years ago. They were um, like on a double date or something. And they were at, uh, like, I think they were at Disneyland. And um, they were hanging out and having a good time. And then at 9 o'clock during the summer, Disneyland has fireworks. 
And so the fireworks started going off. And uh, this, this guy, who was a, a veteran of Afghanistan, ran into the bathroom, the men's bathroom, and then um, curled up on the floor and began rocking back and forth. Because um, the explosions from the fireworks triggered a, um, a panic attack as he was reminded of uh, what he had experienced overseas. Th those are extreme uh, circumstances, but they are real ones about how the past um, can exercise control over the future in our lives. Uh, the past can be something that um, paralyzes us or um, controls us and robs us of a future. Now, PTSD is, like I said, extreme, but uh, you, can, you can trace this all over. I mean, I, I see it all the time in uh, the patterns that we develop and the ways that we interact with people. Um, they're, they're shaped and owned by uh, past patterns and past... Man, I am a huge proponent of CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, there, there are Christian therapists out there who uh, can help you, like, stop letting the past own the future. Um, I, I, I know personally several um, veterans who've, who've experienced PTSD and who have um, come to a place where, where the past no longer owns the future. They've come to a place of acceptance. They've come to a place of peace about what happened. And that opens up brand new vistas in life. If you are stuck over and over the same junk and the same patterns keep rearing their ugly heads, it's possible, it's very possible the past is owning your future. Don't let that be the case. Come talk to me. We will find help for you. We will talk through and we will see how we can open up. I'm going to skip the, well, we'll just look at the up arrow. Oh, that's your bright future. This apparently is like a part of a marketing campaign. So, you know, let's move on. Let's, let's go past that. Nobody here is undamaged. And I think Joseph does give us a really good template for what God would have for us and the way that we deal with the tragedies and the dark things of our lives. Uh, this is a picture of what happens when you plant something in poop. Um, yeah. I don't know, I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but almost all plants come out of some detritus. We use manure. I've even heard that human poop is supposed to be really good for growing stuff. Just saying. There's something that's built into the way that God has created this world. That things that are really ugly and really damaged and smelly and messy are the very things out of which God creates beauty. It's up to you to accept, with God's help, what's gone on in the past. But it's also for you to be open so what kind of resurrection, what beautiful thing God might build out of that in the future? Like, it, just because you, you, you've, you, know, you accept, you live with um, your scars, you, you have that, that, that manure, and that, but, but sometimes God does amazing things. It's not past hope. God took Joseph 
from the bowels of life imprisonment, put him at the head of Egypt. God took Jesus from the cross and the tomb to his right hand. God can do those things. God can make beautiful things out of the dust, out of the darkness, out of the crap of our lives. We accept God resurrects. Let's pray. Gracious God, I pray for um, everybody here, anyone here right now, God, who, um, who's caught up, who's um, just caught up in, uh, in the past and in, in grudges and in um, broken family relationships, uh, all the things that hinder us that, and, and, and just wallowing, God. I just pray for anyone here who, who's almost come to love their pain, God, that you will um, send your, your spirit of healing um, the spirit of redemption that we have through Christ to, uh, to pull uh, them out of the mud and into uh, the glorious future of service in your kingdom. God, I pray for anyone here whose uh, past has tangled them up and owns their future that rules over them, fear, pain, um, loss, that God, uh, you will just overcome that you will uh, let the people of this church walk through with those who are suffering from a spiritual kind of PTSD so that they can be healed, they can know what it's like to have your future again. God, for all of us, for all those places in our lives that are, that are dead and gone, even for those of us who've accepted them and, and moved on, God, I just pray uh, the power of your resurrection to surprise us and, and, and show us new life in places we never thought we would see them that we would see um, Joseph's resurrection, we would see Jesus' resurrection uh, in our own uh, brokenness. God, you make beautiful things out of the dust. You are the one who turns um, dirt and, and waste into beauty, into glory. We confess that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.